Morant is dead. Funny how secrets travel on. Welcome to Now Playing's review of Lost Highway. This is some spooky shit we got here. Part of the Now Playing David Lynch review series. And there you were, lying in bed. It wasn't you. It looked like you. But it wasn't. Hosted by Stuart. He's a friend of Dick Laurent, I think. Jacob. A lot of people are going to be real happy that you're back. Including me. And Arnie. We've met before, haven't we? I don't think so. Where was it you think we met? At your house, don't you remember? As a matter of fact, I'm there right now. And join Stuart, Arnie, and Jacob at NowPeaking.com for reviews of every episode of the Twin Peaks series. You and me, mister. Looking really out ugly them some bitches. Can't we? These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. I want you to study that motherfucker! And I want you to pay the goddamn rules! Listener discretion is advised. You ready to work? Yeah. Well, let's go to work! And the rain sets in. It's the Today we're discussing Lost Highway, starring Bill Pullman, Patricia Arquette, Balthazar Getty, and Robert Blake, directed by David Lynch. This is the now playing co-host who's smooth as shit from a duck's ass, Arnie. Stewart in LA. And this is the host who with tailgating is one thing I cannot tolerate, Jacob. <laughs> when you live in LA, you gotta be able to tolerate it a little. <laughs> I don't know. This takes place in L.A. No, but you do have these pistol-whipping fantasies. I can tell you that. <laughs> but, Lynch, where did you go? Hotel room. 1992 shots. Feebly put out in January of 93. This film did not appear until February 1997. It's a little misleading. The absent isn't as, as long as it seems. It's just that Lynch wasn't making features. He couldn't get features made is the real problem. Yeah, something, something about Ronnie Rocket, we know. <laughs> yeah, one saliva bubble. The more interesting ones were he, he wrote a new script called Dream of the Bovine, a comedy in which three cows decided to see what life would be like if they turned into people. And so it was kind of like Splash with a, with a milk <laughs> fetish, I guess. Uh, the one I want to see, and the one that I think we're actually reviewing today, sort of, is he was going to adapt Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis, which is a story about a man who wakes up one day and becomes an insect. He was going to make it set in 1950s and have a rock and roll vibe to it. And he got so far as even making the bug. And I don't know why, but he just couldn't get the money. So that didn't happen. But he did work a lot. He made art books, photography books. He worked a lot of commercials. He, he worked with Michael Jackson on Dangerous. He did teasers and such. It didn't seem that long to me, though, because if you look at his filmography, it's 
about three to four years between movies. And, you know, take television out of it. Yeah, there was only a couple of years between Dune and Blue Velvet, but then there was four years for Wild at Heart. And here, we're just four years past Firewalk with me. So five years, I guess. But it just, it didn't seem like he was one of those directors who puts out a film every year. So when this film came out, being a Twin Peaks fan, I was anxious to see it for his name on it, but it didn't feel like, David, where you gone? No, oh, well, the hype had come. I mean, it felt like David Lynch was everywhere in 1990 and 91, and he was. He was appearing on talk shows. He was putting out all kinds of things. To me, I I had also changed a lot in my life. I had, you know, gone to film school and, and was watching other things. And I experienced David Lynch as a time as a teenager. This was the first time that I saw one of his films as an adult. Yeah, it had felt like a lot of time has passed. I was out of college, so... You know, maybe it was only a short amount of time, but I felt like a completely different person. I guess because I just kept reliving Twin Peaks in college. I rewatched the series between my sophomore and junior year and watched Firewalk with me a couple times. It just didn't feel that long for me. But when this came out, I was there opening weekend, saw it twice in theaters, then eventually picked up the DVD when it finally came out, got a decade later. Yeah, I saw it in theaters as well. I love the promotion for the film. It was a poster with half the face of Patricia Arquette, half the face of Bill Pullman, and right above the title, two thumbs down. <laughs> they actually promoted the fact that Siskel and Ebert hated this film. That was the selling point. I did read that, yeah. <laughs> yes, that made me even want to see it more. But yeah, I always liked Lost Highway. I enjoyed this film, and I saw it very much as a comeback. I was... Cold on Lynch, after all that hadn't worked out for me, with On the Air, Hotel Room, Fire Walk with Me, I had kind of forgotten about the guy. So it was nice to know that he could put out a film that really grabs you. And whether you like this movie or not, I do think it has some really strong visuals and really strong, scary moments. And I will say from here on out, I really am a Lynch newbie. I feel like I'm much more familiar Twin Peaks and anything before that. But yeah, this is my first time viewing Lost Highway. Yeah, that's right. You didn't review it for the book. That was Stuart nope. Marjorie and me <laughs> reviewing it for the book. And yes, you know something? I picked this movie as one of the picks that I figured we would never review on now playing the show. And a movie I love, underrated. I don't think this gets the attention it deserves when you look at Lynch's oeuvre. I don't see it brought up as much as Wild at Heart, Blue Velvet, Elephant Man, Mulholland Drive. This one seems like a lost middle child. But I'll tell you, I wanted my review to end with the book. I never wanted to do a show on this movie because I love the movie too much. And when I was researching it for the book, I learned things that I never wanted to know and now, because it's what we do, I'm going to share them with the listeners, and I'm going to forever change their opinion about this movie. If you haven't seen it yet, I'm going to color your first viewing. If you have seen it, uh, at least for me, the things Lynch has said afterwards changed my way of looking at it. I mean, Lynch actually said... And I don't know the source of this quote, but he said, A film should stand on its own. It's absurd if a filmmaker needs to say what a film means in words. The world in the film is a created one, and people sometimes love going into that world, for that world is real. And if people find out certain things about how something was done, or how this means this or that means that, 
the next time they see the film, these things enter into the experience and then the film becomes different. I think it's so precious and important to maintain that world and not say certain things that could break the experience. And then, damn it, Lynch goes off and says things that break the experience. I'm shocked he actually does that. He never talks about what his films actually mean. I know, right? I know. I think I know what you're getting at, and you might be blowing it a bit out of proportion. It should be said that this was written in 1995, a year that was dominated by OJ News, and that was definitely in the zeitgeist of the time, the the murder and the subsequent trial, and I know he made some allusions as, as being influenced in this feeding into Lost Highway. But I've also mentioned, I think the first draft of this appeared in 92 with Hotel Room, and this is yet another collaboration, his final collaboration with Barry Gifford, the author of Wild at Heart, Hotel Room. They got together to adapt one of his novels. It was called Night People. And in that novel, there's a passing line of dialogue with the phrase, Lost Highway. It triggered something in Lynch. And that was where he was like, let's not do your book. Let's do something else. Let's just see what a lost highway is and let's just go with it. And so basically they worked together on this script and hammered out uh, something. I read it pretty close to what we get. Not surprisingly, it was a little bit long. Uh, Not as long, not a four-hour cut, but it was about two hours and 40 minutes. We've lost about 30 minutes here And a lot of it is stuff that comes in the middle, I'll bring up. Yeah, there's a couple deleted scenes for this that I did see. And a David Lynch documentary was made during the filming of this. I did watch that documentary. Doesn't really reveal much about this. I mean, it reveals as much about Eraserhead as it does about Lost Highway. It's just happened to be filmed at the same time, and they had a couple shots from the set. It catches Lynch coming back. I do feel like he was a very sad man. I mean, his relationship with Isabella Rossellini had collapsed. His sound designer, the man that had ushered him in through Eraserhead and all that cool sound effects that we've all championed. Alan Spleff, he died. Jack Nance, this is his last final screen performance. He died in 1996. Lynch had had a falling out with Julie Cruz. She's not singing in this movie. I think he got remarried, re-energized, and ended up making something that brought him back to his roots. I feel like this is a movie that really brought me back to the Lynch I discovered in Eraserhead and Blue Velvet. Well, that's why I'm interested in reviewing this with you, Arnie, because you really didn't like Eraserhead, and I just, wow, these feel very comparable to me. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think so, but the one thing I'll say is, and I thought this when I saw this in theaters, this really feels like Twin Peaks to me. There's some imagery here that we can talk about, and eventually one of the things Lynch said is he realized he had not left Twin Peaks. And in his mind, this movie takes place in the same reality as Twin Peaks. Some of the supernatural stuff we'll see could very well be comparable to Black Lodge, White Lodge, Bob-type stuff. So that's why I think I was able to jump right into this movie as much as I was, is Twin Peaks was the initiation. Well then, you can jump into the plot summary. Let's get into it. Bill Pullman plays Fred Madison, a jazz musician married to his wife Renee, a brunette played by Patricia Arquette, who Fred thinks may be cheating on him. One day, the intercom to his house buzzes, and when Fred answers, a mysterious voice just says, Dick Laurent is dead. But Fred doesn't see anyone at their door who could have said it. Then Fred and Renee start receiving mysterious videotapes left on their doorstep. 
The first is just a shot of their home. The second, however, goes in the house and films Renee and Fred sleeping. They call the cops, who say they'll watch the house, but don't do much else. But at a party thrown by Renee's friend Andy, played by Michael Massey, Fred encounters a pale-faced mystery man, played by Robert Blake. The man says he met Fred in his house, and even puts out a cell phone to have Fred call him there right now. Best scene of the movie! <laughs> oh, I don't know. Hmm. Oh, it is. It's so great. Somehow the mystery man answers the phone at Fred's house, though they're both at Andy's party. Fred and Renee leave, but the next morning Fred finds another videotape. This one goes inside their house to show Fred brutally murdering Renee. Fred is condemned to the electric chair, but while in solitary confinement on death row, Fred transforms into 24-year-old car mechanic Pete Dayton, played by Balthazar Getty. The police are mystified, but release Pete, though they keep a tail on the youth. Pete works at Arnie's Auto Shop, <laughs> and his best customer is the dangerous and ill-tempered Mr. Eddie, played by Robert Loggia. When Mr. Eddie drops off his Cadillac for work, Pete finds himself insanely attracted to Mr. Eddie's woman, Alice Wakefield, a blonde also played by Patricia Arquette. The two begin a torrid affair, but Mr. Eddie seems to catch on. The two plan to run away together, and Alice suggests they fund their escape by robbing a guy she knows who always has plenty of cash on hand to pay women to party with him. It turns out Alice's mark is Andy, Renee's friend. And it appears Andy and Mr. Eddie, who's also known as Dick Laurent, coerced Alice to shoot pornographic videos for them. In the robbery, Pete and Andy struggle and Andy is accidentally killed. Alice and Pete go to a cabin to meet Alice's fence and sell Andy's items. But when there, Alice turns cold to Pete, saying, You'll never have me. This causes Pete to turn back into Fred, who's visited by the mystery man, who shows he was the man leaving Fred the tapes. Fred goes to the Lost Highway Hotel, where, in the next room, Renee, not Alice, Renee and Mr. Eddie, slash Dick Laurent, are having sex. After Renee leaves, Fred ambushes Mr. Eddie and takes him out in the desert, where, joined by the mystery man, they kill the gangster pornographer. The mystery man disappears, and Fred drives back to his house. He goes to the intercom, buzzes it, and says, Dick Laurent is dead. But he's spotted by the police, so he runs to his car and flees, chased by a group of police cars, as credits roll. And man, those credits. I mentioned the fact that David Lynch wanted to make a rock and roll version of Franz Kafka. He was listening to different things. Bata Lamente is a part of this soundtrack, but he's not the only one. Barry Anderson is also here and probably contributed all of the music that you really think of when you think of Lost Highway. Uh, he doesn't contribute Rammstein. Yeah, Trent Reznor actually produced the soundtrack. He'd worked on Natural Born Killers. Lynch was impressed by that. L let's be clear, though. He took the songs that Barry Anderson and Angelo agreed to include in the movie and then mixed the those into a CD. I think he also had some input on the songs is what I read. Well, he was feeding Lynch tapes. He was yeah. a fanboy, yes. They, I feel like there's a lot of people that love David Lynch that wound up involved in this movie, like Marilyn Manson. As I understand it, Trent Reznor approached David Lynch to do a video for him in the early to mid-90s. Lynch 
refused completely, not knowing who Trent Reznor was. And then it kind of came back around and the two collaborated here. And I think of Natural Born Killers quite a bit when I think of this movie. And the soundtracks are part of that reason. This opens with just a tremendous song from David Bowie, a period of Bowie's music that I actively dislike after he started that outside album and things. Give it another chance. You know what? I might. You haven't listened to it in 20 years. I think you'll be surprised. You're right. If I went back, I might like it. When I listened to it then, and I gave Outside a chance, I listened to that album a good dozen times before throwing it in the garbage. I did not like it. But the song here really gets you. It could be Battlementi music. You know, the way he Battlementi composed and Julie Cruz sang, the way this has that opening thumping riff. It's a little upbeat for Battlementi, but I thought it was score until Bowie started singing. Yeah, I'm Deranged, I believe it's called. Yep. The album itself is a concept album about a serial killer, a deranged man who is out there murdering people in a in an artistic way. Another song from the soundtrack ended up in seven for having a thematic similarity. We were just in the serial killer age. We were also in the Tarantino age. You mentioned Natural Born Killers. Boy, do I get a whiff of that when we get into this movie. And I laugh every time when I see Patricia Arquette walk on screen, her first shot. How could it not be a joke on Uma Thurman in Pulp Fiction, right? Like the haircut, all of it, it just seems like parody. Never got that. So I guess, you know, the Betty Page bangs were in in the 90s. and Because of Pulp Fiction. I never can follow women's hairstyles to the root cause. I just know I saw those bangs a lot. And yeah, I didn't notice that here. I'll notice a lot of things about Patricia Arquette. I do notice this is quite obviously a wig. There's a lot to notice. Yes, there is. (laughs) She actually, in that documentary I watched, said, and I can't decide if she's lying. She said she took the role because she had a phobia of nudity. And even in her private life, she said she'd take baths in the dark. And so she did this to confront that, even though she'd like lay on the ground crying between takes and calling David Lynch Satan. And it's also worth pointing out she was romantically linked to Nicolas Cage, who was obviously a big friend of David Lynch, loved working with him on Wild at Heart, and probably pushed her into this project. And why Bill Pullman, I suppose? This lead role, it could have been Nick Cage. It could have been Kyle MacLachlan. This is right off the heels of Independence Day, right? I was going to say, I was a Bill Pullman fan at this time. I saw Zero Effect because he was in it. I saw a lot of things because he was in it. Him being on the marquee did help bring me to theaters, but I wondered why Lynch chose him. He hasn't worked with him since, to my knowledge. No, and I I read, he, he did give an interview, and he said it was always, he never considered anyone else. What he liked about Pullman was that he seemed so average, and that's what he wanted to start start with. When you start with Nick Cage, you know he's going to go crazy. And Kyle MacLachlan, I'm not sure if he has these dark currents in him. We're going to find out in season three. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We'll find out what he's got in him, because I think they'll have to confront that. But I think that he liked the idea of playing with, starting with Bill Pullman, a man that does... There is just something dark about him. He is usually in sappy movies. I think of him as the other guy in romantic comedies. But I also see that he kind of works 
as a stand-in for David Lynch. He kind of looks like him. He's got the hair. Yeah. Yeah, he's always had the swooping hair. And I mean, his career went back and forth. He was in, what was it, Mr. Wrong with Ellen DeGeneres playing like a clown trying to woo her. I'll defer to you on how good those <laughs> movies are. I knew him from very little other than Serpent in the Rainbow. I don't even think I had seen Independence Day when I saw this movie. But these are great scenes. I want to just say what they were trying to do in Hotel Room with that clip dialogue and those lingering menace moments. This is essentially a two-act play set in one location where I can't determine whether this couple hates each other or loves each other. And there is just such menace to every single line. I found the stuff between Fred and Renee. Like, I had my TV cranked up all the way to try to hear their dialogue. It seems purposely very quiet. Like, they're having sex at one point and, like... I don't know, she's saying something like, it's all right. You got to really pay attention to what's going on. You know, I read something with Lynch recently where he said he's a fan of home theaters so long as you have a good sound system. And I think this is one I know I annoyed the neighbors because I watched this late at night and my subwoofers <laughs> are on the wall to the outside of my house. And I know the neighbors can hear it sometimes when my walls are thumping. But I had to crank this one up so I could hear what they're saying in the low moments. And then, of course, it's going to blast you during some of the louder moments. And then Bill Pullman's going to whip out a wicked sax solo. <laughs> As for the it's okay bit, I really was like, okay, could he not get it up? But he was quite obviously thrusting. I think he came too soon is what she's saying, because she looks quite... I took it as he couldn't finish. <laughs> I thought he finished, but she was. She looked really bored, disinterested. She was not left satisfied by that sexual encounter, and I think that's why she was saying it's okay. Plus, it was a chance to give us a close-up of her black-painted fingernails. I think those fingernails are going to come into play, but you say that looks like Lynch, but he plays like Angelo Badalamenti when he gets up with his jazz band and doing the crazy sax. If only, Arnie, I have to invent this. It's very sad to say, but I did attend the David Lynch two-day musical event. I can't even remember what they call it. Something like a Festival of Confusion, I believe it was called. I was so excited because Badalamenti was the final act. He was going to play all this stuff, you think, this is going to be so great. And then I realized, pretty almost instantaneously into the set, that music is really dull to watch. When you're playing the Twin Peaks theme and with a live band, there's nothing for them to do. They got about 30 seconds before they're even playing another note. This, however, Fred is just doing freestyle bebop. And this is like... He's fighting. I mean, it, it feels like a boxing match, the way that he's playing the saxophone. I wish that watching Battle of Mente <laughs> live was as innervating as this set list in this Luna Lounge. I'd say check out John Zorn if you're not familiar with him. He does some crazy sax stuff like this. <laughs> but I couldn't decide when watching this. And I, you know what I'll say is I love this film because it's open to so many interpretations. To me, his wailing on that saxophone is like fingernails on chalkboard. And... He keeps going when the band ends, but yet I don't know. Is he the star of the band, or did we just catch him during a sax solo, or did he go off script and the rest of the band standing around going, what the fuck is Fred doing? No, I... <laughs> I guess I just listened to avant-garde jazz, so it seemed like, oh yeah, this is something someone in LA would play. Yeah, I liked it. Call me crazy, but I I would listen to this just on my own. I think it's cool. Yeah, to me, it's the music of a murder. <laughs> but... <laughs> I do not like it when he starts doing the full solo. It's just, it's acoustically caustic, but I get 
it's setting a mood there and it's giving us an inference. We're going to see later on he thinks Renee is cheating on him and he thinks he saw her at the club with a guy with a thin mustache. If you're cheating on your husband, why would you go to the club where he plays? In LA, there's a lot of places to go. That was two different nights. That wasn't at the same time. I wasn't sure because it seemed like a flashback, so I didn't know if it was that night. And I took it as almost a dream because he's like laying down and then you just see these sparks. Like there's not even sound like him at the sax. And yeah, it, it, again, it's Lynch, so it's probably not supposed to be clear. Yeah, she has a really lame excuse for the first night. She's like, I'm not going to go to the club. I'm going to stay home and read. And, you know, he's like, read what? You know. <laughs> What could be more interesting than supporting me at my nightclub? And yes, so she didn't go that night. I think that we see, yes, in a flashback, a different night. I think he's wearing different clothes, although he never really wears different clothes. I think she's wearing different clothes. Well, she changed to cheat on him, wouldn't she? (laughs) It has to be this way because you're right, Arnie. Otherwise, it makes no sense. She was at the club to support him on another night, but ended up leaving early with a man whose party they will end up ending at. This Andy character. We'll find out about him much later. But again, most of this movie is set in this very dark, ominous house. David Lynch's actual house. This is where he lives. They decorated it differently. It's not how he has a lot more of his own stuff around. He also designed and built all the furniture, though, which explains why their television's just sitting on two blocks of wood. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. all of the furniture is his. The paintings in the background are his ex-wife. So again, this marital tension. What's he working through here? The fact that he would bring all of that back. His first wife from the 60s. And at one point, they flip. (laughs) One point, they're upright. And then a later part, when it's getting more tense, the pictures are upside down. I feel like Lynch definitely has his own dialogue going on here. And what it means, I don't think we'll ever know. But I think he's working through some marital aggression. And and with this whole, is it a flashback? Is it a dream? Again, all this does really for me is ratchet up the tension and the paranoia. Like this starts off very paranoid with this mysterious Dick Laurent is dead over the intercom. David Lynch claims this really happened. This is how he got the idea. I did read that, yeah. (laughs) That he was just at this house. Someone did ring his buzzer. They knew it was him. They were like, David... Dick Laurent is dead. And and David was like, who? And so he did what Bill Pullman has to do here. He has to run to the front to look out the windows because they're so strange. By the time he got there, no one was there. So it's just a little moment that he repurposed. And the thing I really like about this movie is I went in knowing almost nothing. The, The television as the trailers told me so little. And it starts off as really this noir thriller because they start getting videotapes on their doorstep. It turns out we're watching a horror film but it doesn't seem that way from the early frames it seems like body heat with the long pauses between lines and how every word is kind of said hushed voice something like that but it's when they start getting these videotapes that we're going to enter a mystery the first one i like that Renee says, oh, it must be from a real estate agent because it's just the outside of their house that makes no sense <laughs> do real estate agents do that? Artie, you've sold a house. Do they just like do a 10 second filming of the outside? These days they do longer than that and put it all on YouTube to sell your house. But back then, I mean, is he trying to drum up business? 
Was it like video dating? I, I don't get it. <laughs> this conceit is just wonderful. I love, I love this part of the movie. It really is an extraordinarily menacing idea. The idea that something innocuous as a videotape could suddenly become a predator, a stalker. I think lots of people have taken from this too. Ringu, the ring. The Japanese probably, they love Lynch. I know that this was big in Japan. I think that this actually inspired all of those ghost girls and all those ripoff movies from Japan. And what really ratchets up the paranoia or, or makes us a supernatural thriller, I think, is when they get that second videotape where you go inside the house, but that is a weird angle. Like, it seems like the camera is floating through the house. It comes through the, the skylight. It seems like he came in through uh, above. He didn't go through the door, but yeah, almost like he did drop down. But it goes down the hall, so it wasn't someone just filming through the skylight because it keeps going yeah well i'm saying i think he dropped in or, or floated in as you said it feels spectral it doesn't feel like a cat burglar it feels like a ghost and the fact that he's going to go into their bedroom while they sleep they must be heavy sleepers because somebody's in the room pretty close up on them and whoever's filming films both fred and renee in bed so this tells us it can't be them doing the filming, right? Or I guess later on the cops are going to think Fred's doing the filming or Fred had an accomplice in all of this. Interesting on that because there is a cut moment from the script. I don't know if it was filmed, but there was actually four videotapes. In the final version, there's only three. In the first video, is just the outside. In the second video, they creep inside and go all the way to the bedroom. The third video, they do the same thing, but this time, Fred wakes up and seems to look at the cameraman and just stares at him for a while, and then it cuts. So it seems to be that there is some kind of complicit understanding between filmer and filmy. That would be an interesting thing. I thought the reason they did three tapes is, I mean, that's the rule of horror. It's the rule of comedy. You always do three, right? You set a pattern, the first one, the second one, and then the third one changes something up. And so that's why when watching it this time and full now playing goggles on, I'm analyzing everything. I'm like, ah, the first tape is this, the second tape is this, and the third tape is the big stinger. Yeah, the real third tape, but the yeah. third tape that got cut out of right, this movie. Right. And then I think we also meet who's filming them in what I've already <laughs> revealed is my favorite scene of this entire movie, the classic scene. You say Lost Highway. I love Robert Blake. I think he's a tremendous actor. Always been a fan of him. In Cold Blood, a terrific movie, and he is so scary as the killer. I didn't think he could be scarier. And then this movie. Well, then again, he is an accused killer. He did get acquitted, but there was a thought for a long time that he killed his wife to get out of marriage. And so I think he's always been so damn eerie in this movie to me. And this is his last role. But once he started getting accused of murder, it just adds something, doesn't it? it? The fact that he's here abetting a wife murderer and he's accused of being a wife murderer and multiple people went on the stand and said he tried to hire them to kill his wife. I want to point out that that happened after, long after this movie, several years after he chose to play this part. He sort of lived it, maybe. Before we even actually see him, don't we get a shot of him in drag dressed as Renee? We get another dream sequence where he's Fred is telling Renee, I saw you, but it wasn't you. And we get that. I'm pretty sure that's Robert Blake with his 
white makeup on with a wig. It is, but it's like projected. It's like superimposed. They did not put Robert Blake in a wig. They floated his face over on Patricia Arquette's body. I think it would have been far more effective to see Robert Blake's body with the wig, but... Yeah, exactly. Something is coming towards him. What's worth pointing out is that the makeup that Patricia Arquette wears is the makeup that he wears, the same shade of lipstick. And later when she's taking it off, she does kind of look like him, even in the bathroom mirror. I think they're asking to draw that parallel. I think they're trying to say there's something about her that's making Fred want to think dark thoughts. And boy, this confrontation here. I don't know that anyone else really notices this very strange man who looks a whole lot like Dean Stockwell in Blue Velvet. Yeah, there's definitely some Blue Velvet parallels here. We're going to have this movie's Frank Booth and Mr. Eddie here. Yeah, the way the delivery is, there's a little bit of Dean Stockwell there, but also with the white pancake makeup on and everything, he's just the specter of death. He could have walked right out of the Black Lodge. He could have been sitting there eating cream corn with the little man in Firewalk with me. And in fact, we're going to see in Fred's bedroom, he's got floor to ceiling length red curtains that are going to be pulled back. It feels very red room. And yet at the same time, I wonder, you get this confrontation at Andy's party, we'll find out, between mystery man Robert Blake and Fred. And yeah, which is probably the best scene in the film. Like, oh, I'm at your house right now. Call me. And Fred calls himself there. I'm starting to read this. And look, it's Lynch. So we could have all kinds of crazy readings. I'm starting to see this as a metafiction, though, like where the mystery man is Lynch and he's toying with these characters, trying to come up with ideas. And we'll see he'll change his mind about characters throughout this film and, and they'll change. And so... Yeah, is he something supernatural? Who knows with this mystery man? The thing that surprised me is that Andy knows him. I thought for sure that he was a ghost that only Fred could see. But Fred goes over to Andy and is like, who is that guy? Oh, I don't know his name, but he's a friend of Dick Laurent. I'm like, oh, other people see him there? He's not just in Fred's head? Yeah, and Dick Laurent, something we hadn't been thinking about. Even though there probably have been only 12 sentences spoken in between the opening and now, we had just kind of forgotten about someone leaving that message. And now we're starting to connect something. We've met before in your house. That seems like a confession, right? This is the man that's breaking in. And he's in there now, so that means he's supernatural. He could have floated in there. See, and I read this differently because this movie's a time loop. So when he says we met before, did they or will they meet again is upon repeat viewings my question. Yeah, we'll find out that Fred doesn't even know who Dick Laurent is at this point. Like Andy like says he can't be dead and Fred doesn't even know him. So how, how does he know what he's talking about? Yeah, Andy knows him. Yeah, Andy does, but Fred does not. Yeah, and I, you got to laugh. We're, we're, there's so much tension here. I'm looking for any excuse to laugh. So when it happens in the car, well, he's got some fucked up friends. Yeah, You just got to love the way that Fred is just trying to hold it together, driving his wife home. How does he process what's going on there? He can't tell his wife what just happened. But yeah, he blames Andy basically for inviting these crazy people to the party that he never wants to go to. He's a loner. He's an isolationist. This is a character that just wants to retreat to his home. And I think that will be an important distinction between him and the character that he's going to become in the second half of the movie. I'd really like to see Fred and Renee during their dating period because she has a hell of a lot of secrets. Like, how do you know this guy? Oh, he 
referred me to a job. Oh, that's not good. Again, so much is inference and suggestive. What could Andy be connected with? And when we find out what that means for this marriage and the infidelities. Yeah. Let me just ask at this point, did you think that Renee was cheating on Fred? Did you have an opinion? I'm never sure. I'm still not sure. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what's in Fred's head. I don't know what's being placed there. You know, one of the lines he says that I absolutely love is when the cops are there investigating this video camera stuff. He's like, I like to remember things my own way, how I remember them, not necessarily the way they happened. So even if he thinks she's having an affair, that's not how he wants to think about it. He wants to think about it the way his mind perceives it. So is there an intruder? Is she having an affair? It seems likely she's having an affair. She seems kind of listless. She's full of secrets. She was referred to a job by Andy. I gotta think she's not on the up and up entirely. She didn't want to go to the club that night. She wanted to read. She doesn't look like a book person. (laughs) And I'm so focused on fred's paranoia that it maybe it is all in his head he likes to tell himself how things play out instead of how they really are so this could just be all in his head he's reading into things he's imagining her with andy at the club so who knows yeah and i think that that is what mystery man represents is empirical truth that there was a time not so long ago that if it was a photograph it was evidence it was believable it was factual that wasn't manipulated then came bigfoot Well, there was always that stuff, but you know what I mean. A picture is worth a thousand words. We had a belief that if you filmed it, that showed uh, an objectivity that living through it, it was a most reliable witness. I'd rather get a security camera's version of events than an eyewitness's version of events. And I find that interesting because I believe Lynch said the camera is the greatest liar. The camera is not truth. Well, that's why he represents Fred. He is Fred. He doesn't want to believe in that empirical truth that is invading his home and dissecting and analyzing his relationship. And whatever else transpired in that bedroom that we kind of see in the third videotape. This is the first time ever that I freeze-framed this movie because it's like the first two. Again, the rule of three. They all start outside the house. Then the second one goes down the hall. This one goes down the hall and they go in the bedroom, but instead of seeing them sleeping, I think I've always thought that Bill Pullman was lying next to the body of his wife, like grieving or something. Like he was Mm. upset about it. It looked like that way to me. Well, this got some heavily MPAA cuts, and this is one of the scenes that they couldn't show long enough. I paused it. Her body is completely dismembered. Her leg is on the bed. Her hand is cut off. You see the black fingernails? The hand with the wedding ring has been chopped off and is on the bed, but the arm is on the ground. She's cut in half. Her intestines are spilling out, and he's covered in blood, so... Yeah, he looks a lot more guilty when you freeze frame that shot. Yeah, I did. it was the first time I had ever done that too, Arnie, and it was, I wasn't sure that was him. I knew it was her mutilator, at least that's what I believed I was looking at. But I was, much like Fred, not sure that he was the one that did it. But he is rocking back and forth, holding, I believe, a knife covered in blood, her blood. I didn't see anything in his hand. I saw a bloody hand, but I did not see a knife where I freeze framed it. I'm pretty sure there's a knife in his hand. 
But again, I think that this is all, you know, pretty sure is not totally sure. The footage is on grainy VHS videotape and with just very brief flashes of color. So hard to know for sure what you're looking at. Intentionally vague. But one thing is clear when you do freeze frame. Bill Pullman is in that shot with Renee. And he has the line right there. I'm a killer. Tell me I didn't kill her. Jump cut to being punched in the face by the cops who were at his house, calling him a wife killer, and we're going to race through the trial period to him getting the electric chair. I don't even know. I guess some states still use the electric chair most of these days, and I think California at that time was all lethal injection. Yeah, the electric chair is just because David Lynch likes electricity. His brother (laughs) wires things for a living. He actually does city grids and such, and he just has a fascination with that. We saw that in Firewalk With Me and in Ronnie Rocket, if it ever gets made. I mean, we've had like two or three whiteouts already in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And we kind of get one when he says, tell me I'm not a killer. Right before that jump cut, there's these flashes of light that come up and then we get him punched in the face. Sometimes that's lightning, right? Sometimes it's a storm outside and sometimes it feels like psychotic break. Yeah, it's hard to tell. The one thing, there's no thunder on the soundtrack, but there is a rumbling of bass that comes. Like when he's fucking her, I thought my DVDs were going to fall off my shelves. My subwoofers were going so crazy. He really ramps it up there. The other thing that shocks me is this is so taut. Like you said, there's not a lot of dialogue, but the mystery is so hooking. And once Robert Blake shows up as the mystery man, I'm so into it. If you'd asked me to guess the times, I would think the Bill Pullman stuff is 15 to 20 minutes of the film. I would never have guessed it's almost an hour. It's 50 minutes of Bill Pullman before we get the transition to the second story. I definitely felt that time. It, again, Lynch, he, he could always cut out 15 or 20 minutes of every film. I know he ends up cutting out like three hours because he goes way, way over time. But I do feel like there's a lot of just staring down dark hallways and staring at faces. I I like the paranoia. I like the vibe. I feel like it could have moved a bit more, though. I'm going to disagree on that very strongly. I feel like the first 40 minutes of this movie are letter perfect. Wouldn't change a thing. It lingers. I'll give you that. It is slow. But I'm not the kind of person that thinks a slow pace means they ought to pick it up. I like that it lingers. I think it makes it more ominous to just drift in this darkness. And just because there's a lot of time between lines doesn't make this slow for me. To me, a slow pace is nothing happens. A lot is happening. Things are being inferred. We're being introduced to new characters. To me, when you accuse me of being bored with a slow pace, this is not my definition of slow pacing. Not a lot has happened. I mean, I want to say they've gotten three videotapes in 40 minutes. I mean, that's not a whole lot. And a mystery man phone call and a murder. But the murder's overlooked. The murder happens almost like an ellipse. We're almost not sure if it even did happen. And again, Fred is locked up without even understanding his own role in that. This is where big cuts happen. There are two portions of this movie where they they chopped and a lot of it there was a whole trial section there was a scene in the morgue david lynch played the mortician looking at the body there was a lot here that they just decided when they wanted to bring the movie down it was contractually required to be two hours and 15 minutes they ended up turning in two hours and 14 minutes and so what got caught is is this transition here all the stuff in prison poor henry rollins 
a tip to directors making serial killer films. Just don't film the trial stuff. Natural Born Killers, Lost Highway, it's always the stuff you're going to cut. Yeah. But to me, it is a little bit abrupt that we jump to him in Death Row, but it works for me because I kind of want to see where the story's going. And he gets in there, he starts having these horrible headaches, he is sweating and falling over, and then his body is going to tear apart, he's going to see a vision of a cabin exploding in reverse, and he's going to transform into another person. That is not the movie that I thought it was in the first time I watched this. Yeah, I mentioned Franz Kafka. Have you ever read The Metamorphosis? Yes. Yeah, high school, it was required reading. Yeah. I think that this was Lynch's way of making a commercially viable version of that story. They wouldn't let him do it the way that he wanted to. But the idea of just spontaneous, the next morning you're transformed. A a sudden, unexplainable event. It's very Lynchian in that way. And so, yeah, I totally dig this as a concept. I've loved all these concepts. The idea of videotapes that are exposing a dark marriage and we don't know how they're being filmed. Worth pointing out. He seems to be being watched by the cell bars above him. You know, they had that skylight in their house. That was how the videographer was getting in there. And now he's in this cell and he keeps looking up at the light. There's bars on the ceiling and there's this light. Yeah, it's a blue light coming down on him when he changes. I think that's what transforms him. Honestly, I think it comes from that electricity. Now, Lynch did explain, and I don't like it. I wish I didn't read it, but he did explain his view of what all this is. In his mind, this is about a man who killed his wife and just literally couldn't come to terms with the fact that he did it. Yes, kind of OJ. Does OJ even believe OJ is guilty is, I guess, the question. And so at this point, Lynch is saying this is a disassociative episode where he becomes this other thing, kind of an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, like a man on death row having this out-of-body fantasy of something else happening. That's interesting that that ruined it for you because I kind of took it, that's the point of this, is that Fred or maybe Peter, one of them are real and one is the story they're telling themselves so they don't have to cop to what they did. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think you could probably look at, at it either way. Or is it the story of a young man who is in this affair and and thinks about what his life could be if the shoe were on the other foot. I mean, what's real and what isn't? I don't think, to me, it's important to solve that. I think that having a reading in which, yeah, a dissociative personality is, is a good reading of the film. I think that you don't like that. I thought you were going to complain specifically that he cited OJ. It's the first time that David Lynch has gone to pop culture and current events for inspiration. By 1997, to me, OJ was old news. And I mean, I realized trials were still going on, but to me, it was out of my mind. And the thing I loved about this film the most is that I could watch this film eight times and have eight different readings, all of which were equally valid. One of the things that I like is that we're going to find this character he transforms into, this Pete, is a fully realized character, possibly more so than Fred. Fred we know nothing about. We meet his wife. He has no friends. His wife has friends. Does he have family? We know nothing about Fred. With Pete, we're going to see his friends, we're going to see his girlfriend, we're going to see his family. And so I like the fact that it could literally be that something happened, that Fred went away and there was a transformation, a body teleportation, 
something like that. I am not afraid of bringing the supernatural in. I mean, we've got Robert Blake walking around his death. So I'm okay believing that an actual metamorphosis occurred and these are both real people too and and some things in this movie will point to that near the end but i I love the fact that there's just so much that could be done and it's a movie that's just got such a vibe to it that with the music and the imagery that goes that i didn't like anything ever being specified i wish you'd go back and tell me what the fuck was up with Eraserhead and stop talking about this movie <laughs> see Eraserhead, i feel comfortable with this one look there's a lot of imagery that i like but i don't know there's something missing in this i feel it's very comparable to Eraserhead. but I, there's been cool moments cool musical stings and that and you know you want to tell a story get psychological literally psychological and just examine what is going on inside of someone's head again i feel Eraserhead did that Stuart you've been using the word I like this concept I like that concept that's how I feel it's like we're gonna get a lot of concepts here I just don't know if they ever meld together for me for a story that I want to see how much the second story connects to the first one is there a highway that links those two worlds is really the question for the rest of the movie all I'll say is a complaint is the first half is so good, the second half can't help but disappoint. I've always felt like the second half of this movie is, by comparison, very underwhelming. Still enjoy things about it, but I'm mostly enjoying it as the way that it links back to the first. But let's just face it, Balthazar Getty is not as compelling a character. I'll agree that I don't like the casting of Balthazar Getty. I had to look him up. He was a name I heard a lot in the 90s, and mm. you know... There's a lot of Natural Born Killers links here. Balthazar Getty was an auto mechanic in Natural Born Killers who goes down on Mallory before getting shot, if you remember that scene. And I just don't find him as likable or as compelling as Bill Pullman. I know you guys haven't liked Bill Pullman in the past. I have, so I thought maybe it would just be me. I like him as Lone Star. <laughs> That's true. I forgot Spaceballs. He is good there. But there's so much that does suck me in in the second half of this film. I'm hesitant to call it lesser. Balthazar Getty, yes, he's lesser. But this is the part that starts introducing Robert Loggia, and we get a second Patricia Arquette, and all of these things are pulling me in so much that it's not as tense and it's not, and it does have a different vibe. If I'm forced to pick, I like the Bill Pullman scenes better, but I still love this stuff. It goes from supernatural to just more of a standard noir story for me. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. The first half, I had no idea where it was going. The second half is every movie from the 1940s that had Humphrey Bogart. I mean, there's just not a whole lot of surprise to that individual story. Yeah, a young kid's going to fall for a mobster's dame, and that's going to get him in trouble. Seen it a million times. Videotapes are showing up in your doorstep, showing you things that go on in your bedroom at night while you sleep. I don't know where that story could go. So that is the difference for me. But there's always this hook. There is something supernatural. He disappeared that night. When we're introduced to him, we see him like standing out under a street light, uh, you know, shades of blue velvet there. And his father, Gary Busey, his girlfriend and his mother are screaming his name and running at him as he kind of fades away. And his parents later on, they're going to talk about, he's like, they're like, we'll never talk about what happened that night. And so to me, there is that supernatural 
air hanging over every scene. What is going on? What happened to him that night? I only think about that when Gary Busey's on the screen because I don't feel like the film really cares about that moment. Instead, we're going to get, you know, Richard Pryor. Love to see him. I don't know why he's in this movie, but great. He has a cameo. And yeah, we'll get some funny stuff about tailgating. Well, he's playing Arnie. Again, not a great Arnie on screen. I mean, he's not one of the worst Arnies, but he is, you know... Richard Pryor was in the late stages of his MS, and so he's confined to a rascal and not getting too many lines that he can get out clearly. But I liked seeing him on screen. I've always been a Richard Pryor fan. I remember when I saw this, I'm like, well, it's nice they literally wheeled him out for a cameo. You know, I have this debate when I watch David Lynch movies. Does he love freaks? Does he mock freaks? And this is one of those moments where I'm like, He didn't need to get Richard Pryor for this other than to show the world a Richard Pryor they weren't aware of. Richard Pryor hadn't made a comedy in about as long as there there had been a David Lynch movie in theaters. And we didn't know he was in this condition. It feels cruel to bring him out in this way just to be like, I don't know. But they give him one good scene where he's like having a telephone conversation with a customer. I got nine guys down here. I'll let you talk to seven of them. And if any one of them will get you that price, I'll let you talk to the other two. I mean, why would you even have that in there if not to give Richard Pryor a moment? Yeah, why is this in here with other things being cut? And some of the stuff that got cut, by the way, are more Gary Busey scenes where they talk with the police about what happened that night. More actual of the supernatural is revealed in those moments. But instead, we must have Richard Pryor here to... I hope we're not laughing at him. I don't know if I'm even laughing. No, I wasn't laughing. I mean, I, I seriously was excited to see Richard Pryor. I love the man, but I don't know why he's in this movie. Yeah, I mean, I know why he's in this movie, but I don't think there's a good reason why he's in this movie. Same with Jack Nance. Jack Nance is just here because he's in every Lynch thing. His part as a fellow mechanic is nothing. I like that he fights with Pete over the sax music, though, because I feel like, oh, now we're making connections to Fred. Yes. In that first half of the story. Yeah, no, that was a pivotal scene. I mean, here we now have a young presumably handsome i think we're supposed to think he's he's like james hurley handsome a young guy that's you know got the girl is popular is social other cut scenes are him hanging out with his friends here poor giovanni rabisi is barely in the film he had a lot to do in the cut scenes it was to show that this was a young healthy kid with an active sex life and social connections who is the opposite of Fred, who was stay-at-home and middle-aged and brooding and angry. and But because of the way this film goes, I also read it as, oh, maybe this is really Peter's story and not Fred's story, and this is how he's coming up with that image to explain the killer that we see at the beginning with Fred. That's possible, uh, easily. And I think it would have been helpful to have more of the Gary Busey stuff, the Fred stuff. You know, it took me this watching to finally figure out where Giovanni Ribisi is. I always see him in the opening credits. He's in this movie so little, and he's not doing his usual stammering performance. He's not giving his usual look. It's one of his first roles. I mean, nobody would have known who he was at the time. Yeah, so I finally have noticed him in this. But to me, when this takes off, though, we get away from all those characters. And you almost could have cut even more. 
the girlfriend he has is pretty irrelevant because this whole thing is about his involvement with this gangster Mr. Eddie, Robert Loggia, who got this role in the best way possible. He was up to play Frank Booth, but lost the part to Dennis Hopper. And he was left waiting for Lynch for like a casting call for hours. And apparently by the time Lynch finally showed up, Robert Loggia had been waiting so long, he went all Mr. Eddie on Lynch. And Lynch remembered that and was like, I have a part for you many years later. <laughs> Actually, there was one other step to that. It was that, as you said, that yes, he was under consideration, but pretty much to hear Lynch tell it, he said, yeah, I was never going to hire him. And I thought he understood that. I thought he knew that it was Hopper's role, but he did say, come in and read. And then he had to blow him off and not even give him the reading. And yes, Loja went crazy during that. But the way that he actually got this role was he was on Independence Day and Bill Pullman <laughs> was reading the script to his next movie. That's right. That's right. I forgot about him in Independence Day. Yes. And said, you would be great for this part of Mr. Eddie. And Lozier was like, who's directing it? David Lynch. He's like, oh, no, that man hates me. He'll never <laughs> hire me after I screamed and yelled at him. But in fact, when Bill Pullman told him, David Lynch was like, oh, that man's so scary. We've got to get him, Mr. Eddie. <laughs> From all I've seen of David Lynch, I guarantee you David Lynch has his bad days. And I, despite everything you read about him there has to be a time he was an onset tyrant there just has to be but from his public persona and seeing logia's performance here i have to think he was quaking yeah yeah most people have good stories about him on the set and not being a diva and yes if he were confronted with this i imagine he would cower and run away but yeah logia is going big here i think what i recognize about this is it at least brings the second half to life I think it's kind of cliched. I mean, it's a it's an obvious mobster kind of role. And yeah, Dennis Hopper did it first and better 10 years ago. But yeah, Mr. Eddie brings something to this. I just don't think that beating up a tailgater is that hilarious. I find it a very amusing. I actually was laughing out loud in the theater the very first time I saw it. And I think of him often when I look in my rearview mirror and see some fuckhead right on my tail. Yeah, no, it's it's obviously like that scene that's going to win a lot of people over. It's it's just of a different mood. It's funny and it, it's outrageous. Could be in a very different movie. Any movie, actually. Yeah, that, that's the thing. I like it. I don't know if this is the movie for that scene, though. That Like, that's the thing. There are so many things that I like in this film. I just don't know if this is the movie for all those things to come together in. Here's the thing that I noticed on this viewing is we need to know Mr. Eddie is dangerous because he's going to be our big bad for the rest of the film. They needed a way to tell us he is a dangerous motherfucker. And being Lynch, he wanted to do it in something interesting. I mean, I'm kind of reminded of the very opening scene of The Sopranos when we see Tony off on like a college campus. He sees somebody who owes him money and he immediately goes and beats the crap out of him. Instead of going full mobster, it's just this random tailgater. But because he's pistol whipping this guy and those two guys in the back seat, I find them hysterical. Like when the guy flips off Mr. Eddie, the two wordlessly buckle up. They know what's going to happen. And then they pull out their guns 
We never know exactly what Mr. Eddie is mixed up in, but this screams mob boss to me. Yeah, it does scream it loudly. Yeah, again, I like the line, get a driver's manual and study that motherfucker. Great line. I think it says more, though, when Mr. Eddie shows up and tells Pete to get in the car and don't worry about what Arnie's going to say. Arnie's cool with it. Like, that tells me, okay, this this is the guy that pulls the strings. And he also offers as a thank you, yes, this is... Pete is his personal mechanic. He offers him a videotape. And suddenly, yeah, more connections to the other story are being made. Should be said, we kind of glossed over it, but Pete is under constant police surveillance. They don't really like the fact that they had to let him go out of jail. They had him arrested as Fred, and then one day they look in the cell, and it's this guy, Pete. And in the cutscenes, it's much more clear. They realize they just don't have any recourse to hold a man who was literally not the man who committed the murder. So they let him go, but they're not going to let him go far. They're watching him, and when they see him with Mr. Eddie, they go, that's Dick Laurent. Yeah, and the videotape he offers, pornography. I mean, that's a very weird thank you right there. You like porno? (laughs) But... There's something that is going to really come up later. No pun intended, but yes, the videotape connections and the last connection, the biggest one, the one that really is going to have a lot of people with their head turning if you didn't know it was coming. Of course, Mr. Eddie has pretty girls on his arm, but did you think it was going to be Patricia Arquette? This did confuse me. I had to look up IMDb. I'm like, is this someone that just looks like her? Or is this? And then I noticed the two names. I'm like, okay, it's the same actress. Yeah, this is very strange and it's going to be a major plot point. But again, dealing with the supernatural, dealing with doppelgangers here, we have the blonde Alice versus the brunette Renee. And if Fred and Pete are the same person or interchangeable people, here's their interchangeable lover that I love when he sees her and they come up with this version of this magic moment too. It's just, it's cliche, but it sells the moment you need. Yeah, or is this just Fred creating a story to justify the murder of his wife that we saw earlier? I tend to think so. I tend to think one is a mirror reflection of the other, but you could argue which one is the real and which one's the reflection. I think because her last name is Wakefield, as in wake up, that she is the fantasy. And the way that they film her in, in slow-mo to this magic moment, as you say, there's there's something that just feels otherworldly, blonde, that she's... I guess we're supposed to think that she's a good character. If the brunette was the cheating spouse, this seems like the innocent girl who got mixed up in some porn people and now needs a way out. But also, this movie, as I said, is a time loop. So in my mind, they're the same person. Everybody has two names here, you know, Renee and Alice, Eddie and... Dick Laurent, you know, so did Renee used to go by Alice? Did Renee dye her hair at some point? Because Renee said Andy referred her for a job, and we're going to talk about it later on, but Alice got a job from Andy. We're going to see a parallel storyline here that makes me wonder... Is this Renee the early years? Or yeah, is it literally Renee? I mean, did she die? Is this is she now undercover? Did she get pulled out of this by the people that were videotaping and they've set up this guy for killing someone that he didn't actually kill? You could make that connection. That would go with the theory that this really is supernatural and that Fred is able to jump bodies or change bodies. That I don't know if I'm 
willing to actually commit to that idea. Yeah. The thing is, there's just no reason why they would go to this much trouble to to frame a man (laughs) for murder. There's got to be an easier way than sneakily coming into his house and videotaping him and then swapping out the body. But here's the really interesting thing. You said this magic moment could be something that Pete is building up in his head. Or Fred. But really... Alice is picking up on him. She's going to come back later on for him, and maybe it's lust, or maybe she sees an easy mark, uh, maybe both, but whatever spark is felt by Pete at that moment, she feels too, because she's going to come back, she's going to seduce him, ask him to dinner, then say, let's skip dinner, jump to the hotel room, and this is all the setup for her bringing him into her plan, I guess, to leave Mr. Eddie and to rob Andy. Yeah, the interesting thing about this segment is that now our main character is a conspirator in sin, as opposed to a man who may have been cheated on. Now he is cheating on another man's girl, not wife, but he's cheating on Mr. Eddie's beautiful arm candy and he's definitely cheating on his real girlfriend who really is kind of reminding me of fred in their sex scenes she's really trying to be in it and i'm not sure that he has that much feeling for her the shoe seems to be on the other foot in this world in the cutscenes, did he get any other women because at one point the cop says this guy gets more pussy than a toilet seat i'm like well there's two women i'm not seeing him you know exactly whoring I think they were just referring to frequency. Ah. But this Donna look-alike, I'm thinking of Twin Peaks, but she's actually the daughter of Natalie Wood, and I think they were going for a classic 50s kind of look here with Pete and Sheila. But Sheila, it's it's not a world filled with women as vixens. You're being very mean to Natasha Gregson-Wagner to say she's as bad as Lara Flynn Boyle. I wish Natasha had been hired for Twin Peaks. I never used the word bad. I was saying she's playing the same part that she's playing the doting girlfriend to the biker tough guy 50s icon. That's all I'm saying. Well, this is showing me how James and Donna could have been if they were played by good actors. I I don't think Balthazar get it. Well, he would have been better, better than, than James, James Marshall. <laughs> yes, he would have. You're right. I'll give you that. And he is on the third season of Twin Peaks. I don't know what he's doing, but we will see Balthazar and review him again. But yeah, you're right. It does become very standard noir with them having this torrid affair. And yeah, the scenes with the parents where they're not going to talk about that night, it serves as a reminder that, hey, remember the first part of the film because we're going to get back there. But at this point, it just becomes suspense that Mr. Eddie is probably on to them. He's making weird, ominous phone calls to Pete at his house. With the mystery man. He does seem to know Robert Blake, and it confirms something we heard from Andy in the first story, which is that that guy was a friend of Dick Laurent. And they replay a lot of that conversation, you know, we met before. Yep. There seems to be built in the design of this that we're watching the same story twice with two different sets of actors and different emphasis on meaning. But yeah, at this point, because we saw that scene earlier with Fred and the mystery man and Fred transformed into Pete, but Pete doesn't have any memory of this, it does really add something. It just weirds me out that the mystery man could be a person that would sit around and take a phone call. (laughs) Well, again, he might have been working at the behest of Mr. Eddie. All of those videotapes in Fred's house may have been the work of Mr. Eddie who traffics in videotape. And 
who Renee might have been working for. Because we will see flashbacks in which this Alice, how she gets coerced into meeting Eddie and basically at gunpoint does a, a strip tease. And I think we're supposed to think of it as some kind of sex slavery, that she's pushed into this life of sex and, and snuff films. And Renee, in some photographs anyway, seems to be one of her co-stars. Yeah, they're next to each other in a photo. And sometimes there's a brunette on the screen. Sometimes there's a blonde on the screen. The interesting thing to me is that while it starts at gunpoint... Pete does call her out and says, you got into it. This was your thing. And she does not deny it. While it started bad, this became her own kink. Later on, we're going to see her not at gunpoint grinding on Mr. Eddie. And while there's definitely always going to be that threat there, if you start something at gunpoint, it seems like she has been a willing participant for a amount of time. And yes, this is where I wonder, is this... Alice's story? Is this Renee's story? Is there a difference? I don't know if there is because I start using their names interchangeably in my notes. Like, I even forget who's who at some point. They become the same person. It's the hair color. Lynch did direct Patricia Arquette to play it the same way. She was like, I think I should have different mannerisms and different voice. And he was like, absolutely not. You are the same person. Play it that way. We are not to understand that they're different other than one is brunette and one is blonde. And maybe they know each other and maybe they don't. They both know Andy and they both thus must know Mr. Eddie because we eventually piece together that Mr. Eddie's mob business involves making pornography. That tape that he wanted to hand to Pete was made by Andy. And Andy seems to, every woman that he knows, seems to be someone he puts into a porn video. And we're supposed to want Andy to go down for that, I think. Because Alice says, you know, if we rob him, we can steal his money and get away from all of this before Mr. Eddie catches up with us and kills us. But at first, you don't know it's Andy. We find out all of this after she's like i know a guy he pays women to party with him and so you're wondering who is this how does alice know him was alice paid to party with him it's not till pete goes to the house and we see who's coming down the stairs but andy our first actual crossover character other than the mystery man who's a mystery man yeah he may not be a character yeah the first time we see pete interacting with someone who under the same name was interacted with with Fred is when Andy comes down the stairs. And then after there's a struggle, Andy gets his head marvelously <laughs> chopped in oh. half by an accidental throw. I was damaged by this for years. No joke. For many years afterwards, I would always eye glass coffee tables <laughs> with some suspicion about like, boy, if you do fall the wrong way, could it? Could it be so sharp? You're like, why wouldn't it just shatter? It is all tempered glass. It would just shatter. I have glass coffee tables everywhere. I have broken one. It did not cut my arm in half, but it's a wonderful visual to see his skull bisected like that. And that's when Alice, then we get the flashback of her trying out for the porno at gunpoint. And in fact, when Pete walks in to Andy's house, there's like a 16 millimeter porno of Alice going on on the screen. It's like old school loops. Yeah. With Marilyn Manson and Twiggy. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I noticed Marilyn Manson this time. I'm like, okay, and it, is it a snuff film? Does Marilyn Manson get killed in it? I was wondering that. Yeah, <laughs> see, now it's getting really interesting about death, and if they deal with snuff films, then again... Did Fred kill her, or was this all a setup to plant on him, and he's taking an innocent fall? And I noticed this is where Alice seems to really change. She came up with this idea, sure, hey, to get away from Mr. Eddie, we're going to steal this guy's stuff and get new IDs. Well, she says he has money. Her story changes almost immediately. He has lots of cash because he pays women to party with him. Okay, that's great. Stealing cash is good. But as soon as he's dead, she's like, all right, let's take his stuff. Where's the cash? And when Andy dies, Alice says, you killed him. Oh, yeah. It's no longer they're connected. Now she's starting to push that blame onto him. I feel like you really see her change now. And he tried it. I mean, he it started with him saying, we killed him. And by law, he's correct. She would be an accomplice to first degree murder there. But she's the one who's like, you killed him. This is where we realize she may not be as in love as he is. And this is where the lights start to flash, too. And he's going to walk through that house and lightning's going everywhere and nosebleeds again i think head trauma there is something going on i mean yeah if the way that andy died it wasn't just happenstance it wasn't just david lynch saying oh be funny to drive the the coffee table through him but it is there is a constant preoccupation with splitting open a head and we saw that in the jail cell, and I, I, I just feel like they are two sides of the of the brain lobe. You know, you know about left and right brain people. That the right people are the creative types. Well, that's Fred, and then the left side people are mechanics. They're logic thinking. That's this Pete. They're two sides of the same thing. And he goes upstairs in Andy's place, and there's rooms with numbers on them. So it's not like a house. Very few houses have numbered rooms. He opens a door. The camera starts doing this weird like wah 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 wavy thing and there's a woman in a red wig getting fucked is that also patricia arquette yeah i believe that what we're seeing is in between the two worlds there is a lost highway hotel which is i think just lynch's surreal invention of the truth this is in between the two versions of the story the same story played different ways is the truth. And what happens in this hotel is, I don't know if it's objectivity, it's certainly very surreal. But yes, that definitely is Patricia Arquette mocking the idea that you want to know why and you're not going to find out. Well, this is the closest Pete's going to get to the hotel because really... Where it all comes to a head is at this weird cabin in the desert. We've seen it twice in a vision, exploding in reverse. And then Pete and Alice are going to go there. Supposedly, this is where she's going to meet her fence and sell the stuff. We'll have to wait. So let's do it in the dirt. And man, she turns cold. I mean, she's completely naked. They're about to do it. He says, I want you. And ouch, this is like twisting the knife. You'll never have me. That has always been a punch in the gut to me every time I watch it. He just killed for her. He did everything for her. And she's like, nope. No, I'm not yours. Well, and I think what she's saying by doing that, I mean, she's also transforming back into Renee by doing it this way. This is where we really understand thematically. Whatever you make sense of the plot, this is a story about a man 
frustrated by women. Lynch often gets accused of being misogynist because women just go through such brutal treatment in his movies. But I think it's closer to truth to say that he's always struggled to try and understand their stories and never been able to do so. And that what we're getting a lot from this, you know, much like why did innocent Laura become the co-core or Dorothy Valens, the beautiful nightclub singer and mother become the tramp I think that this is just an acceptance that that woman can never be understood by me. But it's also at this point when Pete realizes he'll never have Alice and she becomes Renee that Pete also becomes Fred now. He transforms back. Does she become Renee? I mean, she stays blonde and then she disappears, but Fred comes back. Well, the mystery man says... Alice who? Her name's Renee. Yeah. The transformation is happening, and we're heading back towards that world that I consider the objective truth, the Lost Highway Hotel. So, yeah, again, I don't see that these are two different people, but two sides of the same person. And when he goes in the cabin, the mystery man's there with a video camera. I think this is the mystery man saying, I made your tapes. I was the one filming. I think we already knew that, but yeah, it's it's confirmation that, yes, he does it. Well, you kind of implied it could be Mr. Eddie, it could be Andy, it could have been... No, I always thought it was Mystery Man because Mystery Man is a friend of Dick Laurent. He works for him. And yet he seems strangely on Fred's side here. He's like, he's the one whispering in Fred's ear and kind of putting Fred up to what's going to happen next. Fred is now going to be violent. When he is turned back into Fred with the words, you'll never have me, is when he's going to go on a spree. And we get this, you know, we've never talked about it. I always consider it a James Cameron shot, but Lynch has done it in so many movies of the headlights on the street lines, right? Cameron did that in Terminator 2. And here we get these shots. It was the opening credits. Something else I noticed, Lynch never likes to step on his movie with credits. Somebody pointed that out about the Twin Peaks episodes. There's nothing really interesting happens till they say directed by. And so here we just get the road and the music till we get through all the words on the screen. But we get the highway shot. And now he goes to the Lost Highway Hotel where Renee, alive and well, and screwing Mr. Eddie slash Dick Laurent. Again, this is just whichever version she is, the one that cheated on him or the one that he cheated with, we're now seeing her with another middle-aged man. Actually, he's heading towards senior citizen, I suppose. <laughs> but So he's having to look at this. I think it's interesting that this character, I guess he wouldn't see it any other way if he feels cheated on, that he can't have any empathy for Mr. Eddie. That he's going to take him out and basically... Kill him. Slash his throat. This is the one point where I did stop the film and rewind it because Fred puts Mr. Eddie in the trunk. He opens the trunk. Mr. Eddie jumps out. They're wrestling, rolling around on the ground. And Mystery Man hands a knife to Fred. And it's so quick. I'm like, wait, was a knife just handed to him? Where did he get that knife? But yeah, I rewound that. And indeed, the Mystery Man is now helping out Fred. And Mystery Man is the one who's going to shoot Eddie in the head too, not Fred. But then the Mystery Man disappears and the gun's in Fred's hand. So we say the Mystery Man works for Dick Laurent, but to me, is the Mystery Man simply Fred's id? And he's, again, disassociating. He's now saying the Mystery Man did it when, in fact, Fred did it. 
Or is it Renee? Because he's wearing Renee's makeup. And we saw that Alice wanted to coax him into killing. And again, there are so many ways to interpret this ending. I agree with what you said earlier. I think the joy of it is that you'll have nine different movies if nine different people see it. I don't know. I won't begin to guess. And it also, this is where we really see Marilyn Manson really well. Because the mystery man's going to hand Dick Laurent just remember those small televisions with the giant antennas, the portable televisions? They never worked very well. I had one. Before there were smartphones, there was <laughs> not very smart portable TVs. This is where we see Renee on the porno and Renee grinding up on Mr. Eddie while the porn's on screen. So, again, I think they're one in the same. And it's that image of Renee with Mr. Eddie that gets Eddie shot in the head. I'll just go ahead and say it. I'm not in love with this ending. I feel like in many ways, uh, Lynch has wound up uh, at a dead end for to all of his experimentations. And the best idea he has is to create a loop, to double back and to go back to the beginning. It doesn't really mean a whole lot to me that... Fred goes back to his home and is the person that tells himself that Dick Laurent is dead by his hand. He doesn't mention that part, but he should have said, I killed Dick Laurent. <laughs> yeah, that either way would kind of work. What's also interesting to me, though, at this point is we do go back and it's rare in this movie that we cut away from the point of view of Fred slash Pete, right? They are pretty much our point of view characters the whole time. But we do go back to Andy's house. We do see those two cops who went to Fred's house at the beginning. And one of them notices in the picture where previously Pete had noticed both Alice and Renee. There's just Renee. And they go, that's Fred Madison's wife, meaning he's tied up. And somebody else says, Pete Dayton's fingerprints are all over the place. So to the cops, Pete Dayton is a person with fingerprints even after this time loop has completed. Yeah, and there was a very similar scene in the script for the first part of the story. After Fred gets the third videotape, you would see cops going through his home and having a similar experience. There was a parallel scene. They cut that scene. It's also worth pointing out that they had scenes in which they believed that Fred was on the lamb. They were looking for him, which is why they have surveillance at the house waiting for him to return. That he has escaped prison. And like you, Stuart, I, the whole fact that this has become a loop, that Pete's fingerprints do exist, this just feels like to me like Lynch is hedging all his bets. Like, hey, anything could have happened here. I'm, I'm not going to commit myself to any storyline. And yet it doesn't bug me for all that. You know, I'm usually the one looking for the definitive answers. I'm not even saying there needs to be a definitive answer. I just feel like Lynch is cheating by saying it could have been anything. He should have an opinion. I don't know that he is saying it's anything. I think we're being told quite a bit. The time loop is kind of strange because he's saying that, and yet he's wanted for murder at this point. So when he talks into the intercom, I don't know if he's saying that at the moment we were at earlier or if he's speaking through the intercom into the past. Because at this point, Renee is obviously dead, and he's going to go on a chase. And a wonderful... I just... There are so many shots in this movie that I would consider perfect, and one of them is Pullman illuminated just by the dashboard light, that weird look on his face with the out-of-focus police lights behind him, and just the music, and it's like it's sped up camera, he's moving all jittery. I just, oh, this is a very powerful ending to me. 
I just think the ending makes the plot irrelevant. That if the debate is that we can have a, a discussion where we finally definitively pin down what this movie was about, I never feel like Lynch's movies in the later period anyway are about the plot. The best way to talk about how this movie is is what it reveals about psychology and human behavior. So, yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff, but it does feel like a, a tidy wrap-up to some unexplained and unresolved feelings. All right, well, we've come to the end of the road. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Lost Highway? Stewart, I've seen the book. I know your answer. Jacob? I mean, unresolved feelings, Stewart. That's how I feel about this film. There are... Again, that that first, I guess, half, we'll call it, the Fred stuff, that builds a really intriguing thriller, supernatural mystery, whatever you want to call it. And then I feel like, oh, no, now we're going to just do like a psychological evaluation on someone. Like, can someone fool themselves to make them think they're not a killer? Or, again, this could be a metafiction, and it's just Lynch as the mystery man going like, okay, Fred, nah, I don't like that character. I'm going to make him Pete now. No, nah, let's put him back, back to Fred and see how that plays out. There are lots of little moments that I like in this film, but it's strangely unemotional for me. I never get into it. And and that's not always a problem. I feel like with Christopher Nolan, he's not an emotional storyteller. I don't ever feel like I love his characters, but I get into those films. But there's something missing in this one where I recognize there's a lot of neat things to talk about. I, I guess I'll put it this way. Like, I like doing math and like train A is going this direction at 90 miles an hour and train B is going at this direction. Like, do you do like that? <laughs> that can be fun to figure out. I don't want to watch a movie based on it, though. <laughs> so like this feels like an intellectual exercise to me and not really a whole film. It, it's not awful. Like if you're a Lynch fan, you'll you'll probably like this. What I had to do is remove Lynch from it. Like if this was some other director, would I be giving it a pass or would I just be giving it a pass because it's Lynch and this is what he does. And so I kind of get that. And I felt like I was giving it a pass because it was a Lynch. So for me, it's, it's a week, not recommend. Oof. Not recommend. Wow. Not recommend. Wow. Okay. I, I've just seen films that do similar things. Go see Rashomon. If you want to see a film about how the truth is confusing. Stuart. Yeah, well, I like the film a lot. And yes, I agree. The first half sets up things that the ending can't possibly resolve. And that is kind of Lynch all over. And yes, by this point, you should know that about him and either accept it or move on. But I would say that the best of Lynch is when he takes surrealism to illuminate not a plot, not a storyline that we can follow, but a feeling and working through an emotional state. If Eraserhead was making peace with parenthood and Blue Velvet was making peace with childhood and becoming a man, I feel like this is a man making peace with his partners. That Lynch is looking back at his past relationships, his frustrations, the chasm between the lover boy that he wanted to be in his youth that was friendly and, yeah, maybe he had affairs to the insecure middle-aged artist who wants to be an introvert and hide in his home. I feel all of those truths coming to the fore here. Yeah, maybe it's also about OJ. Maybe it's about a lot of other things, including dissociative personality disorder. But for me, I always like to turn that videotape on the artist. And I really like looking at this movie as a portrait of a middle-aged man looking at where he's gone and where he can go in the future. It's a very strong recommend. And... 
to try to put into words why I've liked this film, this is one where everything comes together to hit me in my sweet spots. You've got a murder mystery. You've got a little bit of supernatural. You've got some horror. You've got a soundtrack that I greatly enjoy listening to. I'm a big Rammstein fan, actually. But yeah, I love the music of this. And together, it creates a vibe. And I know you guys said at the beginning, there's some Eraserhead parallels. And until we started recording, I hadn't thought about it. To me, where this is superior to Eraserhead is it starts off with a mystery. It starts off with a hook. It's got its own Who Killed Laura Palmer. It's, first of all, what's going on with the videotapes? And then did Fred kill Renee? And then why did Fred metamorphosize? There's more hooks. There's more why. And then it creates a vibe that the best way I can explain it to me is I hadn't smoked weed in about three years by the time this movie came out. But when I watch this movie and I'm not taking notes for now playing and I'm just sitting back and enveloped by this movie, I kind of get that feeling of everything's coming at me and everything's clicking and it all means something like an orchestra of audio and video and sound and light. And it is one of those movies that I can totally get lost in the vibe of. Whereas Eraserhead was all dissonance and strangeness. Here, there is a plot that can keep me engaged on an intellectual level, mixed with audio and visuals that absolutely are stunning to me every time I watch it. I think this is so well shot. The soundtrack... Unlike anything Lynch had done before, bringing in some Marilyn Manson and some later David Bowie and some Rammstein and mixed with the Angelo Badalamenti score when it comes up. To me, this is a symphony of perfection, and it is the strongest of recommends from me, and I think it's my absolute favorite thing Lynch has ever put in theaters. So what you're telling me is we need to go back to Eraserhead and recut it to some contemporary 90s alternative rock, and it would help a whole lot. And just have a murder mystery at the beginning. Yeah, have a murder mystery at the beginning and cut out the funny parent stuff. Cut that out. (laughs) That stuff's so good. All right. Well, we can't save Eraserhead for you, but I'm glad that you had a really positive experience. I did too. I want to point out, I haven't recommended the last several David Lynch movies that we've covered, but yeah, this is a return to form. I feel feel like it is both a return to what made him successful in Eraserhead and Blue Velvet, but also paving the way. This was the first movie he ever made about Los Angeles, and it will be the preoccupation for much of the rest of the movies that we cover, but not the one we're covering next week. I guess it's worth saying that in the script, that tailgating scene was to take place on Mulholland Drive. And we'll be getting there eventually, but first we're going to have a very interesting road trip it's fast and the furious right fast and furious comes out in just a couple days we're reviewing that next tuesday we are reviewing it the good news for you guys is that you will hear me scream about that movie i hope it's better than the way that i've seen and experienced every trailer but it's not because of me folks it's my fault i am on a road trip right now it is true that while you're listening to this I am actually out in America driving around and won't be home in time to film it. But Arnie's 
did it too. You're at some convention. I'm at Star Wars Celebration this weekend. I'm actually going to be podcasting live on Sunday morning at 1030 at the morning at the podcast stage there with Marjorie and Daryl reviewing some Star Wars items. <laughs> but not Fast and Furious. No. I'm also running with Marjorie the Star Wars Collector's Social Area where we're doing a video diary of collector's memories. 40 years of Star Wars. This year is Star Wars 40th anniversary 40 years of collecting we're doing a big video project there we're doing giveaways we're doing trading there's a swap meet saturday night so if you're a star wars fan and headed to orlando this weekend i hope to see you but because of that i will not be seeing fast and the furious on opening night because i'm running part of a convention for lucasfilm so i hope you understand and we'll be doing the fast and the furious a week from Tuesday or a little earlier if I can get editing fast. Right. In the meantime, instead of having a Fast and Furious <laughs> adventure on the road, let's take the slowest ride. The very slowest we can go. How about on a riding lawnmower? I've seen this movie. I have what I consider to be a funny story about viewing this movie. And we will be talking about it next week. But I'll say my memory is, having only seen it once... It is indeed what the title says, a very straight story, unlike Lost Highway in any way I can imagine, other than there are vehicles that go on roads. And I would say that if you hadn't picked Lost Highway for the book, I would have insisted this was an underrated gem. I would have put it in there as my choice for lunch. And in the meantime, our now peaking episodes are completely available. We're not only getting close to the Fast and the Furious, but the days are counting down till Twin Peaks comes back on Showtime. I'm hoping that the buzz is getting to some of you and you guys may want to watch Twin Peaks again or for the first time and then talk about it with some friends or hear us talk about it with you and then come to the forums or our Facebook page for now peeking and chat about it with us. For $29.99, you get all the episodes we've done, which is 30 episodes, plus all the episodes we're going to do, which is 18 more hours of Twin Peaks. We don't know how they're going to put that together. It's probably going to be maybe a two-hour start and a two-hour end, so 16 more episodes, getting close to 50 podcasts for $29.99, or you can get them individually for $0.99, cents, and it really helps out our show if you do. Yeah, I've really enjoyed going to Twin Peaks, and we'll continue to do so. And this Lent retrospective has been great fun. I hope you can join us. And also... We are starting our spring donation drive for movies in just a couple weeks on Fridays. We're going to be reviewing the Pirates of the Caribbean films, or maybe it's the Pirates of the Caribbean films. I'll have to still figure that out by two weeks from now. And we're also making available through the classic method, the Aliens and Planet of the Apes series. Pirates of the Caribbean is silver for $10 or more. You can donate to us through PayPal, or you can get the episodes individually on our Podbean page. Alien is gold for $25, or again, those episodes are on our Podbean page. And then for platinum for $40 or more to us, or all through Podbean, you can get all the Planet of the Apes films, because we've got War for Planet of the Apes and Alien Covenant both coming out, new installments in those series. If this sounds confusing, head to nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. It's all spelled out right there, but it's really very easy. You can donate to us through the classic method, get these episodes by email, or you can go to our Podbean page and just get them episode by episode, including our new reviews of Alien Covenant and War for Planet of the Apes 
when they're out. So thank you for your support. Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me on this trip down the Lost Highway. And until next week, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's David Lynch Retrospective Series, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You did a great job, Pete. Yeah. Well, you know I like working on these comics, Randy. Now that you've heard this movie review, head to NowPeakingPodcast.com to hear Arnie, Stewart, and Jacob review every episode of the Twin Peaks TV series. Another videotape? Yeah. Don't you want to watch it? I guess so. And go to booksandnachos.com to hear reviews of all the Twin Peaks related books and audiobooks. What are you going to do? Stay home. Read. 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 Read what? <laughs> Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com to hear our reviews of other films such as Blade Runner, Ocean's Eleven, the James Bond films, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at NowPlayingPodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. I gotta check it with, uh, with the boss. It's okay with Arnie. Come on, let's go. We could just get some money. We could go away together. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. I know offense. He'll give us money, get his passports in exchange for all this shit. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Thanks, Mr. Eddie. No, thank you. Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums where you and the other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. The link to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. You invited me. It is not my custom to go where I'm not wanted. Now Playing is produced by Arnie Carvalho. What a fucking job. His are ours, Lou. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. Best goddamn is in town. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. It takes many strawberries to fill a bucket, but it's worth it. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. How did you get in with these fucking people? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. I think there's no such thing as a bad coincidence. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Make yourself to home, fella. You don't think just ask the concierge. In the East, the Far East, 
When a person is sentenced to death, they're sent to a place where they can't escape. Never knowing when an executioner may step up behind them and fire a bullet into the back of their head. What's going on? It's been a pleasure talking to you. <laughs> including his father nick nolte gary Busey, are running at uh, gary Busey. sorry i got my wrong alcoholic blonde it's a understandable mistake yeah <laughs> and strange silver bullet connection gary Busey and a minor character named arnie go figure <laughs> <laughs> You've got a soundtrack that I greatly enjoy listening to. I'm a big Rammstein fan, actually. And when they start playing that here... I did see them in concert because of this movie. It was awesome. Oh, I'm jealous. I'm so jealous. Yeah, they can't do the pyrotechnics anymore after Great White. <sighs> Never stopped Kiss. <laughs> Give me back my phone.